0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: As an announcement also, um, or just a follow-up on what Jim said, the class this Saturday by Diana Clark on the life of the Buddha should be quite interesting. Uh, Diana has been studying the life of the Buddha quite a bit and knows a lot and uh, has a wonderful sense of the stories and concepts of the Buddha and background in our tradition could probably ask answer any of your questions on this topic and how the the life of the Buddha fits into our teachings our practice what goes on here, including if you go you could ask her whether the, the Buddha really existed and see what she says so um, and, and Diana has a master's in Buddhist studies but she's a long term uh, she finished her studies last year and she's a, a long term member here at IMC and was our treasure for a while, and it's part of our integral, integral part of our community. So it's kind of special that she has a chance to come and do this here. Okay, so this evening I want to continue the series of talks I'm giving on the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of enlightenment. And um, I have done four of these already. And now we have the fifth factor of awakening, which is tranquility. Many people associate meditation or even Buddhism with tranquility, serenity, peace. People put those peaceful Buddhas in their gardens, uh, you know, in order to kind of create a nice, tranquil feeling in their gardens, perhaps. And, um, and in fact, Buddhism itself champions the value of being calm, of being tranquil. Uh, as a stepping stone to being able to see really well to see things as they are to see clearly if the mind is agitated uh, it's kind of like the mind gets cloudy or jumps around a lot uh, because it's caught up in its thoughts its concerns and it becomes a filter through which we can't really see very clearly and to be able to see into the depths of our lives and depth of ourselves it helps a lot if we have a lot of tranquility Um, some ancient person said that uh Um, If you wanna really see yourself reflected in a lake, you wanna find a tranquil lake, not a lake that's choppy and, you know, full of waves, wave made waves. You don't see yourself, no reflection happens. So the same thing with our mind, we wanna make it calm so we can see uh, honest, good reflection of ourselves in the world we live in. So this, uh, the topic of today is tranquility in the context of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the really key uh, lists, uh, practice lists, in this early Buddhist tradition. Uh, There were two very important lists that uh, in terms of practice, meditation practice, that was really emphasized a lot. And they kind of go, not exactly hand in hand, but they kind of complement, I don't know what to say, but there's um, the list of things which we have to contend with which are difficult in our practice, and then the list of things that begin happening in our mind when the mind gets settled and starts getting concentrated, focused, So the difficulties are called the five hindrances. And uh, these good qualities that get developed are called the seven factors of awakening. And the task of anyone who does this practice of mindfulness, mindfulness of the path to liberation, is in fact to become uh, intimately familiar with um, their mind and how the mind, how the hindrances operate, how we get caught up in the agitations that can come from sensual desire, the agitation, agitated mind that can come from ill will or hostility, the agitated mind that can come from, oddly enough, sloth and torpor, uh, being really uh, resistant or lethargic, and the kind of uh, restlessness that can come from, or agitation that come from restlessness and remorse. And then last of the hindrance is doubt. Doubt can be very agitating, and you, often with a lot of doubt you can't see clearly. And so these, um, these five, then, uh, are to be addressed directly, to understood how to settle them, to calm them down, have them recede. And, uh, and uh, to say it maybe in a different way is uh, we sit down to meditate, perhaps, to let all the agitation of the day drain away. And, um, and without the agitation, then, we can start seeing clearly, and that's a task of mindfulness, to see clearly. And I like to think of mindfulness as uh, looking reality right in the eye. The willingness to turn and see what's there. And then how you see, how you look, is what's really important. Um, it's important to see what's there, for sure, but how you're looking is really the key to this. And if you're looking in an agitated way, if you're all discombobulated or confused, or you mind jumping around a lot, and you can't stay on, uh, on, you know, on focus, then you're not gonna see clearly what's actually here. So, um, but to be able to turn towards whatever is happening and have the ability to gaze at it, to look at it, be present for it in a calm way is uh, part of what we're looking at, what we're cultivating here in this practice. So when the mind is agitated, uh, the task is not to berate yourself or feel bad about an agitated mind, but to uh, turn and turn your gaze the best you can to look that right in the eye. Just look at an agitated mind, agitated body, uh, the concerns, the preoccupations, the worries we have, the things that are causing us to spin, and say, I see you, and s- I see you, there you are. This is an agitated mind. And then in the looking, begin seeing if you can be calm in the looking. Can you be settled in the looking? Can you be non-reactive in the looking? Just there. There's a very famous uh, kind of story, myth, that uh, from the ancient Buddhist times, of um, uh, you know, when the Buddha was getting enlightened, in that process, he uh, there was a kind of a certain kind of demi demigod called Mara, who seems like uh, Mara's job description is to prevent people from getting enlightened. It's uh, not quite like a devil because it's not necessarily evil in the usual way we think here of the devil being evil. But his, his job is to kind of like, you know, he doesn't really want people to leave his realm. And his realm is the realm of sensual desire, being caught, in, caught up in the world of the senses and material possessions and things. And so he has certain, that's his domain, and if people get liberated, they're no longer in his domain. So he wants to stop it. So he challenges the Buddha fiercely in the night of his awakening. And the Buddha overcomes Mara and conquers Mara and is able to become enlightened. And, uh, but then after the Buddha is enlightened, uh, Mara continues to visit the Buddha. And uh, the, one of the questions is, what's the Mara doing after the Buddha is enlightened? Um, and especially if the, some of the tradition says Mara is a personification of our inner forces of temptation, of restlessness, all these things. What's the, these forces coming to see the Buddha, Buddha after his enlightenment? You know, he's supposed to be happy ever after, enlightened and happy ever after, right? And um, so I don't know about that, but what I do know, what the stories say, is whenever Mara visits, uh, one of the most common ways that the Buddha responds is he says, Mara, I see you. That's all he says. Um, he doesn't uh, get angry at Mara or try to kick Mara out. He doesn't invite Mara to tea. He doesn't engage, engage in a deep psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic um, investigation of Mara. He just says, Mara, I see you there's something very powerful about turning our gaze and seeing clearly what's here. So that's kind of like the bottom line of what we're doing is to really see. And um, and in that regard, I want to tell you a little story of a friend of mine, a longtime student at San Francisco Zen Center, who was a student of Suzuki Roshi, uh, the founder of Zen Center. And uh, this friend of mine who's a teacher, a Buddhist teacher said, uh, asked Suzuki Roshi if I do Um, if I practice then will I get enlightened? And Suzuki Roshi's answer was, if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. And he was satisfied with that answer. If your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. So maybe not quite the same thing, but there's something about sincerely being present and engaging your experience here and now that's very precious, it's one of those really wonderful qualities of being a human being. And to really kind of be here and direct and see and be, oh, this is what's happening, I'll be with this experience here. And not be looking for something beyond it, not trying to necessarily automatically fix it and push it away, but to offer yourself fully, okay, let me just be here with this experience, what that's like. And to try to do it sincerely means maybe you don't do it well. Maybe that's what it sincerely means, but your your intention and your effort, I'll do the best I can. I'll offer what I have to look reality right in the eye, to really be present and see what's here, and try to see it clearly. So we're not expected to kind of measure ourselves against some high standard of you know what the, all this looks like, but we offer ourselves sincerely to this moment and do the best we can. So if the hindrances are operating, we turn ourselves and we see, I see you, what's there. But as we sit and practice, this looking directly at our experience, then um, uh, as as we're looking deeply at it and present for it, at some point or other, and sooner if you're instructed to do this, then the second factor of awakening uh, arises, and that is to look more carefully at what you're seeing and see it, what is it actually? And have the question, what is this experience? What's going on here? So there's a kind of an inquiry, it's kind of like, being willing to, being, allowing yourself to, for the experience to be registered more deeply, you take it in, you begin to differentiate what's really going on in this experience. So this curiosity and interest in our experience is what uh, uh, helps us get, start getting more concentrated and as more involved and engaged in our experience, It becomes more and more interesting to be here. And that gives rise to the third factor of awakening, which is effort engagement, to really be engaged, Remember to really be here, to look, to be present, to feel, to be engaged in this process, N- uh, not to be kind of half-hearted, uh, not reluctant, but you, because of your interest, yes, I'll be here for this breath, for this moment of sitting, for this experience I'm having, whatever it might be. So this wholehearted engagement. With that um, interest and wholehearted engagement, as we get into that and kind of get into the momentum of it, there's something in the psychophysical system that uh, brings joy, brings delight. The delight of being engaged, being absorbed in what we're doing, it's sort a of kind of joy. And the deeper, uh, stronger experiences of joy in practice, um, oh, I learned a great uh, term today. Oh, I forgot already. I w- <laughs> I had lunch with a Catholic priest who um, had been studying Ignatian meditation, kind of Jesuit meditation, and uh, he sat at a Zen retreat and he had an experience that he, he, said he, he'd had, he had a level of contentment and tranquility or peace, Content, use the word contentment. He would never had anything like that ever before. He was a little bit worried about going on the retreat. He hadn't done a lot of meditation before and they were gonna meditate for six hours one day and he was worried about that. And, uh, and then he started sitting and after a while, um, what was it? Um, it was something like unexplicable consolation. <laughs> consolation without a reason it, uh, was kind of the idea that somehow he felt, felt this deep contentment and he couldn't, he didn't know why. <laughs> it just happened. And, um, and uh, so then he actually six hours of meditation that he was worried about became actually quite lovely for him. Um, so the kind of joy that arises, the factor of awakening, is not something you can really kind of evoke, but it kind of arises from within. And it can be quite strong as I talked about last time. Um, however, the uh, the joy factor, in the wor- in, in, uh, in this, especially for meditation, uh, can be quite lovely when it first occurs, but the joy has a kind of thrill to it, this quality, kind of excitement, energetic quality to it. And after a while, um, in order to experience the deeper levels of happiness and well-being, the deep, deeper, something even more satisfying than joy, uh, that joy has to... Uh, become tranquil, has to calm down. And and so at first, sometimes when people start feeling a lot of joy and excitement in the practicing, this is great, um, it's too early to tell them to calm down. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to be happy now, you know. You know, sometimes it's good to go with it, feel the joy, feel the bliss if it's there, the enjoyment, the delight. But at some point, as the, kind of as a natural thing almost, you sit here and and that becomes tra- tranquilized. Everything moves to becoming more calm, less agitated. And that uh, you start realizing that the joy has a kind of agitation in it, a kind of energetic quality that feels really good at some point to let it settle down and become calmer. And then the person starts experiencing calm, calmer levels of well-being and the tradition uh, uses the word happiness to refer to this. And it uh, the happiness is... Uh, is more embodied, more physical, um, and less mental because the, the, the joy, of meditative joy especially, uh, has a kind of mental quality to it, mental excitation. And as the mental excitation calms down, what's left is a very satisfying, uh, 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 sweet, uh, sublime kind of feeling in the body, feeling contented, smooth, at ease, very tranquil, very peaceful. So this movement towards tranquility. So at some point in practice, um, we, uh, the movement is to become more tranquil. And there's a variety of things that support tranquility. The tradition goes, uh, repeats over and over again that uh, it's really helpful uh, to have a blameless life. So don't do things that uh, you, know, you get agitated with because you're to blame for what you did, whether for what you said, what you do, or even sometimes what you think. And to do the things, uh, to live a life that um, you, your, con- in, England, in Western terms you we might call, you have a clean conscience. And so there's no reason that your conscience would be agitated, worried, concerned. And one of the, I'll warn you people, if um, those of you who have never been on retreat before, a long retreat, uh, it's fascinating to see what catches up to you if you go on retreat. <laughs> if you sit down to meditate, you know, for, you know, many hours a day, for day after day, um, if you have unresolved issues, they'll visit, they'll come. And if, you ha- if your conscience, you're, you think you have a pretty c- clean conscience perhaps, but your mind has a different idea, and uh, you'll sit there and things that you've long forgotten about will come and revisit. Oops! Oops! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! What did I do 20 years ago? <laughs> And, uh, and then uh, sometimes you have to come to terms with that. Sometimes you can do that in, your, in yourself, you know, kind of come to terms with it. And sometimes I've known people who had to leave a retreat in order to go and make amends for something that they had forgotten about, but somehow it exploded in the middle of their sitting. So this idea that if you live a blameless life, it sets the right conditions and supports uh, tranquility of the mind, tranquility of the heart. That's one way. Um, the other way to be tranquil, is, the tradition puts a lot of emphasis on creating. A, uh, if you want tranquility, if you want to be supported by that, uh, within reason, have tranquil environment. Uh, they say that a clean environment helps tranquility of the mind. Be around tranquil people. They say helps create tranquility. Um, and so, if that's a need you have, uh, you can kind of see if you can what conditions you can you do that supports you to have that. Um, in this factors, seven factors of Awakening, that tranquillity is said as follows after joy. And it's kind of wonderful, I think, that uh, tranquility, that one of the conditions for tranquillity is having joy, having some kind of satisfaction, contentment, uh, sense of well-being. And so that, uh, there's a kind of tranquillity. doesn't come from just kind of relaxing, you know, relaxing the muscles, relaxing the mind. It's great to do that. But um, there's a kind of tranquility that follows out of a contentment, a delight, a sense of being at home, a sense of being comfortable, and kind of delighted with just being alive and present. That lets us kind of drop our maybe our defensiveness, our ambitions, our fears, our worries, uh, our our greed,s our lust, uh, our addictions we have, because it's so satisfying to be here so satisfying to be present for your psychophysical being here in this life. To be here is so much more satisfying than anything that you can get on television, anything you can get, uh, you know, in recreational activities. Uh, It's just so good. And so this goodness, this feeling of goodness, of sweetness that can arise here is said to be then a condition to help us become more tranquil. And the tranquility, I don't know how to characterize it. um, it's uh, calm, peaceful, cool. The idea of coolness is, especially in, uh, coming out of India where it can be so hot, uh, coolness uh, has a very different connotations than, um, than come out of the English language and coming out of England. So um, you know, so we, 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 I think English language, maybe may if you associate with the climate of England, we like warm. But in India, they seem to like cool a lot and it has different connotations than you know you know that we have here in english but you know some of the he was really you know i don't know, you know you know what's cool different what meanings of cool here but the idea of cool in india was meant refreshing and the idea of sitting under a sitting under a tree on a hot day in the shade of the tree um, is there's kind of a, an image of tranquility in the in the uh, indian buddhism so tranquility all these uh, factors of awakening are, are ideals. And ideals are dangerous because we try to live up to the ideals too quickly. Um, and we measure ourselves against them. And that's why um, one of the best ways, of, healthy ways of attaining ideals and Buddh- Buddhist ideals is to study what gets in the way of the ideal. So rather than thinking, oh, now I have to be calm, relaxed, Even now I even have to be cool. Uh, you know, and so you make your efforts to be calm. And uh, it's a little bit forced. Uh, what's, uh, and who knows what calm is supposed to look like? That's part of the problem with trying to be calm, act calm, is, you know, you don't calm maybe has many different flavors. And you don't know which flavor is right for you at any given time. So rather than trying to be calm directly, um... Uh, become a student of how, of how you're not calm. Try to understand, when you're not calm, be curious about that, be interested. Remember, look reality right in the face, right in the eye. So be, be interested, look for, but don't, don't make yourself uncalm. don't make yourself agitated, but go around your days looking for good opportunities to study yourself, and next time you notice that you're agitated, go, great. <laughs> Lucky me, as opposed to, oh no. This is a drag. Uh, because it gives you a chance to study that. Look and see what happens. What are the beliefs that are operating when you're agitated? What are the emotions that are operating when you're agitated? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to avoid? What's actually going on within you? And are there ways in which you're feeding the agitation? Are you reacting to the agita- agitation? Are you uh, being pushed around by it? Are you kind of... Is it kind of driving you, like your speech, and you're talking faster and faster? I've been around people who seem to they talk themselves into a frenzy, and they start talking, and they get more excited, and somehow the excitement gets them to talk faster and faster, and um, and all that. So, how do you react? How do you respond? What's your common strategy that you have when you get agitated? Um, do, you, do you get do you get really active and you talk a lot? Do you run away? Do you attack? Do you, you know, what do you do when you get agitated? And what's your usual strategies? So it's all these things you can study. And the purpose of studying those and getting familiar with them is that the more familiar you are with how you are when you're agitated and what's going on, the more likely you're not going to completely buy into it. The more likely how you look at it, how you're present for it, can be calmer, more independent of it, a little bit more balanced in the middle of it. And as you learned, uh, learn about how you get agitated, what uh, trips you up, then with time, maybe you won't get tripped up anymore by it. You won't kind of th- those triggers that come along to make you agitated, those beliefs, those desires, those expectations, those fears, those resistances, whatever it is that causes the agitation, uh, maybe you won't have as much power over you. And, uh, and so they don't move into an agitated state. And then you might find yourself calm because you're not, you know, you're not agitated. And I kind of like to think of calm, the definition of calm or tranquility uh, to be unagitated. And the reason I like unagitated is that um, it's harder to have an image of what unagitated looks like than what calm looks like. So, and, you know, to make yourself calm, you know, or think you're supposed to be calm, maybe there's an image of what that's supposed to be like. But unagitated, you know, just, you, there's, there's the absence of something. And in the absence of something, you're allowed to be as you are. You don't have to kind of live up to something. Does that make some sense? So this is the value of studying. So the ideals are important, but one of the functions of the ideals is to help you then study what gets in the way of those ideals and to do it, you know, compassionately, clearly, relaxedly, um, don't make it worse for yourself. One of the very popular images for ca- calming the mind in Buddhism is that of, um, of the settling of a muddy pond. So many of you have heard this many times before. So if you have a pond, that's, uh, maybe, maybe the c- cattle have run through it or something, and all the mud is stirred up, and, um, and then you'd like the pond, to all, uh, the pond to be clear. So you take a big stick and a paddle or something, and you stand at the edge of the pond, and you're kind of like stirring the, the, the muddy water, to kind of you know, get that mud to settle. You know, pushing it, you push the water down with the, pedal, the, the paddle, and you know, encourage it to you know, stir it some more, and push it down some more. And, and the more you stir it, the more you're stirring up the mud, and less it settles. And in order for the mud to settle, you have to learn to leave it alone, leave the water completely alone. And then the water will settle over time, the mud will settle over time. And then over time, it'll become clear. And to a great extent uh, uh, that's often the case with our minds and our inner life, that if we try too much to settle it, we try too much to fix it in some way, it just stirs it up. And there's something very significant about learning to leave it alone. So this is when we come back to the mindfulness thing, to look at directly and leave it alone. Just see it for what it is. Mind, I see you. And just hold it, you have to hold it in awareness. You can't leave it alone and then go, you know, think about You know what you're gonna have for dinner. You have to kind of really be present for it and see what's going on and hold it in your awareness. But beyond that, it's quite something just to let it be. And don't try so much. And if you start doing, doing some investigation, the investigation is a very light touch. It's like, more, almost like it's a little simple question, what is this? And then look more, you know, and then kind of let it show itself. But then giving your mind time to quiet and settle. And uh, so the settling quality of the mind. The last thing I'll say, oh, well, maybe the last one, never the last thing for me these days. It's an occupational hazard, I've noticed the Buddhist teachers The longer they've been teaching, the more they talk. So I don't know when I'll stop. I apologize, but but I'm feeling I'm getting near the end. Maybe you're hoping I'm getting to the end. Um, So um, and then I lost my thought. The. it's said that in the myths of Buddhism that um, the turning point for the Buddha in terms of starting his search for enlightenment was um, he encountered these deep existential issues that all of us would probably encounter, if we're lucky enough, sickness, old age, and death. And, uh, and it troubled him to see this. And then, uh, th- and then he encountered a renunciant And there was something about the calm demeanor of the renunciant that gave him some sense there was an alternative, there was a a way out, there was a possibility of something different. And this idea of seeing a renunciant uh, or seeing someone calm was the turning point for Buddhism uh, because it's created, it made the possibility of Buddhism to be uh, arise. The same story is told of a a uh, first Buddhist king, Uh, his name is King Ashoka. And uh, Buddhist stories, you know, these teaching stories, they love to make strong contrasts. That's how they teach, partly. And, um, and here, the, so this king, it was a historical king, uh, uh, conquered much of the known territory of India of his time. And he, did it, he was known to be, have been very cruel. He had, his name was the Cruel One. And, um, and so there were these massive battles that apparently many people got killed in these battles. And the story goes, at least the Buddhist story goes, that he was walking across the battlefield after he'd won a battle and seeing all the carnage, all the people who had died and still laying on the field. And then he saw, walking across the field, a Buddhist monk walking with a very calm, tranquil demeanor, just walking steadily across. And the contrast maybe between the carnage and the calm monk got his attention. And then he went um, to, uh, he stopped him and said, you know, you know, wanted to find out what was going on, what was happening to him. It, how could he be so calm? What was this about for him, his tranquility? And in reply, uh, it's the story, the monk said uh, uh, some verses from the Dhammapada. He said um, uh, um, to, I'll say it a little bit differently than the how it really is. Um, he's, uh, some people translate it this way. Mindfulness or mindlessness is the path to death. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So you know, imagine this field of all this death. And mindlessness is the path to death. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So the alternative to death in Buddhism is something called the deathless. and um, And this has a lot to do with this tranquility and peace that the monk kind of radiated so then the function of this tranquility so the joy the deeper uh, the tranquilizing the deeper happiness deeper levels of tranquility continue to deepen is so the mind can get concentrated and uh, here also we see that part of this Buddhist tradition puts a lot of emphasis on having the right condi- having conditions in place when the conditions are in place, that things can start happening. Rather than us making it happen, we put the conditions in place. And so the joy and the tranquility are the healthy conditions that support uh, concentration, support samadhi, support a very stable, peaceful, focused mind. And so the sixth factor of awakening is um, uh, concentration. And that'll be the topic for next week. So we have about 10 minutes before the end, and if any of you would like to ask any questions about any of this or any of these, I don't think there's been many questions during this series so far, on factors of waking. If you wanna ask any of it, you're welcome to ask. Are, are these stages like um, a linear series like everybody goes through one and then, then the next one in the same order, or do you sort of like work on different aspects of this one after the other all at the same time? Yeah, uh, both can be true <clears throat> sometimes uh, uh, they can be they're very linear and it 's a way of uh, especially people after they've gone through a lot of meditation sometimes will go back and notice, oh, I kind of followed that trajectory i didn't realize it at the time, but it makes sense it's kind of a natural unfolding that happens um, more often people's experience is that uh, different ones are just noticed and uh, and sometimes people use the f- these seven factors of awakening as a way of evaluating their practice you know and saying well maybe I need a little bit more tranquility in fact these set these um, these um, uh, these seven are divided into uh, take mindfulness out for a minute uh, and then the six remaining ones are divided into two categories the tranquilizing ones and the energizing ones. So uh, investigation, engagement, effort, and joy are all energizing. And um, uh, uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity are calming or settling. And so one way to do, uh, approach these seven factors of awakening is to notice if you need to be, get energized or you need to calm down or you need to be more settled in your practice. And many times what we need is more energy. And so, then, uh, uh, to use uh, investigation to kind of arouse more inner energy, mental energy. Uh, to some people, can have the ability to arouse some joy, delight, gladness, and so that there's more kind of spark in the mind, sparkle in the mind that keeps you kind of engaged. But if you're too agitated, then it's good to kind of calm down. And so, things like concentration practice can help a lot, or equanimity. And then mindfulness sits in the middle. It's kind of like a seesaw. And mindfulness in the middle—that's the balancer. So the more more you can be mindful of what's going on, the more either you know how to balance, or the mindfulness itself will actually help you come into balance, even without any effort on your part. If mindfulness is the great balancer, so it's a maybe a long way of saying all of the above. So, and one of the interesting things to do when you learn about the seven factors of awakening is to um, consider. Uh, as you go about your days, which of those seven are you most familiar with, and which are you, which are you least familiar with? Mm-hmm. So you might say, well, you know, I'm mostly familiar with I don't know what, none of them. <laughs> 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 but you know, there might be one, or you know, and which seems most foreign to you? you know, like, like what? What is he even talking about? And, um, and so if one is your stronger one, that's nice to know, and if one is really weak for you, or you don't even know what it is, hardly, uh, then maybe the one that's weak, maybe there's some way of studying it, investigating it, looking for it, talking to friends about that quality, uh, trying to come to a better understanding of it so you can start identifying and appreciating it and cultivating it in your life. So you might, you know, if you have a Dharma buddy, a friend who's also practices, you might say, there's these seven things, especially someone who knows you really well, why don't you ask them what they think? Which which is this my base my strong one? Which one's my weak one? Might be interesting to hear what they say. So anyway, it's all kinds of ways of practicing with them. Is there a mic out there? If tranquility um, isn't one ideal but it has different flavors for i guess as many different people as we are then the investigation and looking straight at whatever is occurring although it 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 takes that effort and it takes that i just assume that that looking can have as many different flavors too. it can be courageous it can be honest and the tranquility that arises
0: from that um has all i don't know what i'm trying to say it
1: just seems to me that it becomes a very personal thing yeah i think so i think uh, i think it's very helpful to think that this practice is very personal and there might be guidelines, and there might be kind of uh, signposts from the tradition, from the books, from the teachers about some of the things. That can go on. Someone talks about the Seven Factors of Awakening. Um, and, um, but don't assume, you know, they're nice signposts, they're nice kind of suggestions, they're nice um, pointers to things that maybe you, know, you can notice or practice with. Um, and that um, and, uh, might help you, be a mirror so you can see yourself more clearly. But yes, it's a very personal path. And no two people are going to have the same uh, path of practice. No two people are going to have the same experiences. And uh, people are going to be quite, some people are going to be quite diverse, uh, uh, very different from each other, uh, how their meditation or how their Buddhist path unfolds. So it's very important not to be, do a lot of comparison about, you know, that person has got a lot of concentration. You know, and boy, you know, I know that concentration is important in Buddhism. Boy, my neighbor has concentration, but I don't. Well, that might be that it's possible the concentration path is right for that person, and not for you. It's possible that that's not the right path for that person, and that person, your neighbor hasn't learned it yet, doesn't, hasn't come up to the limitations of it. It's a very personal thing, and I think to keep that in mind so that you kind of content to negotiate it on your own, to find yourself, to be present for yourself, trust yourself, um, respect yourself for who you are and what goes on, and in that process, uh, find your way down along the path. So if you can take it all the way in the back, back row, Abraham, the mic.
0: So, as I continue my practice, um, and, you know, maybe there's more continuous mindfulness, um, there's more awareness of agitation. Great. And great, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: Self knowledge is seldom good news.
0: <laughs> and so, one thing that's been um, helpful for me is, um, instead of taking the approach of investigation, to t- often take not not always, but often take an approach of. Um, accepting it as a habit of mind, and that um, there seems like there's a calming in just in not believing it, in just thinking, oh, this is just a habit.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, there is a but here, and that is that in order to have that much wisdom, to know to do that much, you had to do a little bit more than being mindful of it. You had to understand how this works for you, you have to be able to differentiate between leaving it alone and just accepting it, versus some, you know, investigating in some kind of, you know, right. penetrating way. And so you're you're making a differentiation. You you understand. You you know what's skillful, what's useful, and what is not. And you use that ability to say, oh, right now, I just need to be with it and accept it. So you're using what's called the uh, factor of investigation to do what you just de- described. Thank you. <laughs> does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does, it does. I mean, I've been sitting, I've been sitting with it for probably about five years huh. and feeling like, you know, my meditation isn't going anywhere. And then, you know, recently I just started thinking, oh, this is just a habit of mind. Mm. I don't need to believe it. Mm, nice.
1: And then what, how, how that sh- how, what, what shifted then for you?
0: And, and then, you know, and then I feel very settled.
1: Mm. But I don't know how long that will last. Probably not long. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Okay. Anyway. Great, thank you very much.
0: So, besides noting when I'm agitated, what are some uh, ways I can um, diminish the agitation?
1: Oh, how can you diminish agitation besides just being aware of it um, and accepting it and holding it in a nice way? Uh, sometimes you can, uh, in the meditation, with so many. You talk about meditation or in daily life?
0: Uh, both.
1: Both. It's a big world out there <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to answer. You know, so, so many different things you can do. But in terms of meditation, um, sometimes it's good to relax the body. Relaxation helps a lot. So if you if you notice how you're physically tense and see if you can relax that. Uh, if you're in daily life, um, some people find it very useful to fi- notice what they're doing with their hands. Some people, when they're you know, are doing things with their hands, you know, and uh, and sometimes just you know, st- noticing that maybe. St- you know, keeping your hands kind of a little bit still is a vehicle to be calmer because the hands actually reinforce if they're, you know, fidgeting a lot. Uh, relaxing the body, uh, sometimes sitting up straight, uh, having good posture is, uh, can be very helpful to uh, relax. There's something about, oddly enough, um, you know, I said relax helps, but if you relax into a real slump and kind of become like, you know, collapsing, um, chances are that a collapsed posture or sunken posture uh, doesn't help the, the, the agitation relax. But it might hide it a little bit from you. But if you sit up straight, it doesn't hide anymore. You, you can feel it more, but then it has a chance to settle in a way it doesn't if you're kind of like collapsed around it. Um, concentration practice uh, is, a, is a, a classic way of calming everything down. So like to so take, take the breath, for example, and just really focus on it. And and best you can, not let the mind waver from the breath because uh, part of the causes of agitation is a lot of rumination, a lot of thinking in the mind. And so if the energy of the mind is directed towards something like the breath rather than directed towards these thinking, then that can settle the mind. A similar uh, thing can be done by distracting yourself. Sometimes there's a wise distraction. If you're really worked up and really agitated and having a panic attack, Uh, then sometimes, uh, really just, rather than being mindful, they're strategic distracting yourself with something that's healthy and useful to do. Um, You know, go take a shower or go for a walk or read a book or talk to a friend or something. Something that takes you out of the concerns you have so you can calm down. And then, if if it's it's appropriate to do it, once you're calmer, then you can go back and look at your concerns from a different perspective. So I could go on and on, but does that give that, that you helps. A, a, enough Thank you. ideas? Thank you. Okay. So. Um, so you might uh, consider this week what your relationship is to tranquility, calm, serenity and see uh, when, in the, when in the course of the week, when in the, in the course of the day, you feel most calm and most tranquil, when in the course of the day, in what situations you feel the most agitated, and what does it teach you about yourself, these two situations? What, is it, what do you learn about yourself by paying attention to when you're agitated, and what do you learn about yourself when you pay attention to those times where you, when you're relatively, in the, in the, for you, in the course of the day, more tranquil? What can you learn? Pay attention to yeah. those. Okay, thank you.